This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, this show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Welcome back everyone to the 240th episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. In this episode, we talk to an expert on adolescence and eating disorders. We cover a lot of territory in this podcast, from healthy foods and what foods are needed for brain development and teens' overall health, what moms can do when your teens skip meals, what are some healthy snacks for teens, when should parents be concerned with weight gain, or if they should be concerned at all. We also explore the signs of eating disorders, of bulimia, anorexia, and binge eating, and what should moms do, and how eating disorders can look different in teenage boys. Dr. Anna Tanner is Vice President of Child and Adolescent Medicine for Aconto Health with brands Veritas Collaborative and the Emily Program. She is a board-certified pediatrician who has specialized in the care of complicated adolescent patients in particular patients with eating disorders, for almost 25 years. Dr. Tanner completed medical school and residency at Vanderbilt University and then remained there to serve on the pediatrics faculty in the Division of Young Adult and Adolescent Medicine. Dr. Tanner has been very involved in advocacy and education efforts and serves on national and international committees for eating disorders education. She speaks frequently across the United States on the medical complications of eating disorders, especially as they affect children and young adolescents, and contributed a book chapter on that topic in the fourth edition of Dr. Phillips Mailer's Eating Disorders, a Comprehensive Guide for Medical Care and Complications. Dr. Tanner currently serves as an adjunct assistant professor of pediatrics for Emory University School of Medicine and Morehouse School of Medicine. She is co-chair of the Academy of Eating Disorders and a member of the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals Curriculum Committee. Dr. Tanner is a fellow in the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine, a certified eating disorder specialist, and a certified eating disorders supervisor. She has been named by Atlanta Magazine as a top doctor every year from 2013 to 2023 and named by Castle Connolly as an exceptional woman in medicine and one of America's most honored doctors. 
Welcome, Dr. Anna Tanner. Hi, Colleen. It's great to be on your show today. Yes, I'm so glad you're here. So the first question I ask all my guests is, are you a mom? And if so, what are the ages of your kids? Colleen, thanks for asking. I am a mom. I have two grown kids, or at least I consider them grown because they're 24 and 22 Mm. now. And one is a daughter. So I'm right there with all of your listeners. Yes, that's perfect. So I thought we first talk about teens and eating habits. It seems like the teens don't have really healthy eating habits often and they skip meals. And yet I know that this is a really important time in terms of brain development. What would you say to the moms? Like, What do teens really need to eat for their health and meals and all of that? That's such a great question. So first of all, at Aconto Health, we believe that all foods can fit. So this whole idea of like, what's the perfect thing for my kid? Nutrition's important. I always tell parents, you know, relax a little bit. Kids are going to get in what they need. And over the course of a week, most kids eat a pretty balanced diet. So like sweating, the minutia of every day, I really just don't think your moms need to worry about that so much. Obviously, kids need a wide variety of foods. So, you know, fruits and veggies and proteins and starches. Dairy is super important during the adolescent years for building bone. And you mentioned brain. It is really important to remember that that brain is still growing until 15. And then it's myelinating. It's maturing until age 25. And fats are a really important energy source for the brain. So a little bit of everything is actually really important for our adolescents. The other thing you mentioned is regularity of eating. And I think that that is a really important concept because you're right. A lot of our teens and tweens and young adults are very, very busy. And so it's easy to not have a regular schedule for things like meals and snacks. So the importance of breakfast, taking a break and having a good lunch, sitting down for a family dinner, honoring those hunger and fullness cues, having a wide variety of foods available, especially as snacks, especially at the end of the day for those growing teens. Those are really important things. So I know all your moms are actually probably doing a great job with this. And I just want to validate how much work it is as a mom to have that food in the house and offer those family meals and spend that time together with your growing kids. Yes. So when you say fats, what do you mean? Healthy fats. The brain needs fats as an energy source. So lots of times when we think about fats, we think about them as a bad thing. But there are a lot of really good fats that we consume in our diet things I always think about are the fats that are in dairy, things like olive oil, avocado. There are a lot of foods out there that have really great fats as energy sources and are really rich in macro and micronutrients that our bodies need. Is protein important? Protein is so important. I'm glad you mentioned protein if I skipped over it. I'm a big fan of protein at every meal and snack because that is so important for building muscle structure. And it gives us energy that lasts between meals and snacks. So really great questions. So what are some healthy snacks? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm actually a big fan of honoring what your body is telling you at once. And so there are a wide range of snacks. And one of the things I point out a lot for parents who have these kids that are growing really fast or really active is a snack for a growing kid or an active kid might look a lot more like a small meal. 
I mean, some kids will need something like a sandwich and a glass of milk, even as a snack, and that could be okay. I'm always a big fan of something like protein and a carbohydrate. So like a peanut butter and apple or peanut butter and banana can be a great choice. But I'll default to even a small meal could be a really good option for some of our kids, depending on the timing of the other meals for the day. Mm -hmm. As a therapist, I've heard so many different stories and moms so frustrated, especially around breakfast. Like (laughs) this one daughter would, you know, take her little Lego waffle Uh and wrap it in a napkin and just toss it like a Frisbee in someone else's yard, you know, when she would go to school. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, again, as mentioned earlier, at Econo Health, we believe all foods can fit. And it's really interesting because some people, breakfast foods are not their thing. And so again, you know, it may be that something different tastes really good to your kid for breakfast. So that idea of a protein and a carbohydrate, getting in some dairy, trying to get in a fruit or a veggie. So for your kid, it might be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a glass of milk and maybe a piece of fruit might be what they actually like best for breakfast. But that breakfast habit's important. Making time for breakfast is a really important aspect of the day to have enough energy to get through the beginning part of the day and school or work or whatever you're doing. So that's a good point. So you might think, you know, I need to give them a Lego waffle, but have a conversation with them and see what they actually want to eat. Yeah, exactly. A lot of kids have different taste buds, different things that taste really good to them, things that they enjoy eating at different times of the day. And thinking about a classic breakfast might not be for everybody. And then also kind of honoring the time that they have and what works for your family, I think is important. So I just think the concept of having breakfast is important and trying to get some balance in there is good. Uh, But also remember the balance can come in during the day and over the course of the week. Every meal doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. A lot of kids I know just skip lunch because they don't want to eat at school. Mm -hmm. Any suggestions around that? Yeah, lunch again is a hard one. I mean, when those kids are busy in the morning and then when they're away from us at lunch, it is really easy to not know how to support them best. It really depends on what their school situation is and what their lunchtime situation is. So some kids do better buying lunch. Some kids do better taking lunch. Again, with parents exploring that option of what do you like to do for lunch? How can I help facilitate that for you? What are any barriers to it? Are they too busy? Is, are the lines too long? Do they run out of time? Every kid's needs around that are very, very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So a lot of moms that I talk to, and really at every single stage from tween, teen, and young mm-hmm. adult, and I think boys, but mostly girls, is they start to panic when they are gaining weight. Mm, Yeah. So it is interesting. Every parent really has these concerns if you talk to them long enough. And it's interesting because as parents, we know our kids grow. And when they're little, kids grow at really actually pretty predictable rates and pretty steadily. And if you look at growth curves for little boys and little girls, They're pretty even, they're pretty steady, it's pretty predictable. And then they hit those tween and teen years. Puberty kicks in, those growth spurts happen, and we see a wide variety of how kids should grow in a healthy way during puberty and during that growth spurt. And so what I tell most parents is, 
if you have always been good about offering a variety of foods over the course of a week, if you've always been good about offering foods in a regular way, we eat breakfast, we eat lunch, we eat dinner, we eat snacks when we're hungry or more active, then during the teen years, their brain will tell their body how much energy they need to fuel that growth spurt and do that development of puberty. But there will be stages where kids might be gaining before they shoot up in growth, or sometimes they'll grow taller before they fill in. And I usually, you know, we want parents to stay the course. We want them not to worry too much if their kid overall has those habits and their family has those habits to allow them to go through puberty and not worry about it too much. It's hard not to worry when you're a parent, but to know that kids grow in different ways and that their body's growing the way it needs to grow is really important. So how much weight, I think probably the mom's listening and I hear this a lot, like if their daughter gains a lot of weight, when should they start to worry? So I actually don't worry about weight gain in growing kids. So kids that are still growing in height, kids that are going through that pubertal development, I usually assume that their body is doing what it needs to do to build bone and build brain and build muscle and finish that linear hiking the way it's supposed to. But it's really hard while their bodies are in transition. Because like I said, when they're kids, they're so predictable and they're so steady. And then suddenly... There are dramatic changes, but it's not uncommon for adolescent girls to gain 15, 20 pounds in a year. But remember, they're also growing in height. Kids gain something like 13 or 14% of their final adult height in the two years of their growth spurt. So if they're growing really fast in height, it would make sense that they may also gain weight really rapidly. And then we got to mention this, those hormones kick in. So for girls, they are experiencing the effects of estrogen. Their bodies are getting curvy, to say the least. Um, and then remember, for guys, testosterone is kicking in. And as testosterone kicks in, not only does that fuel growth and fuel bone deposition, but it also fuels the accumulation of muscle mass. And so this is why kids go from being very similar in shape and size to being adults with a tremendous variety of shapes and sizes and heights, right? We look out among adults, we know there's a huge range of heights and a huge range of weights that are very healthy. People have very different amounts of muscle, they have very different activity levels, and that transition for our kids can feel really uncomfortable. So I really try parents not to focus too much on absolute weight, but are we making progress with growth and development? And let's see where we end up. That's a good point. I hear from moms a lot is they're comparing their daughters to the other friends at school. Yeah. And then they're afraid that, you know, they're not going to have friends because their daughter weighs more than their other friends. And no guys will ever look at them because they weigh more than other people. So what would you tell these moms? How would you comfort them? It is hard parents worry about their kids and weight is one of the many things parents worry about for their children. I know they worry about a lot of other things as well. And again, that idea of, you know, does the family have dinner together? Have we set down years and years of good variety and regular volume of food? And do we have this idea that all foods can fit and our child is growing and developing? But it's very, very hard when you have the kid who 
grows early or the kid who grows late. And parents compare kids, kids compare themselves to others. That is a very hard time. And so I think it's really important to value that your kid is unique, that their body honor, that their body is healthy, honor being active in ways that they enjoy, and that this concept of they're taking care of themselves as a unique individual. So really leaning into that individuality, honoring their own body. I think this is really important to instill in our young kids because you and I both know, Colleen, comparison does not go away suddenly when you become a grown-up. So helping our kids to honor that they're themselves and they're exactly who they're supposed to be and how do they take care of themselves is a really important thing that we should be leaning into during the tween and teen and young adult years rather than worrying, comparing, and trying to be something that maybe we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be ourselves. Yeah. I think there's so much body hatred, Mm -hmm. especially instilled with girls. So I like what you're saying in terms of honoring what your body can do. It can exercise. It can enjoy great foods. It can take you everywhere. Yeah. I mean, are you performing well in school? Are you a great member of this family? You know, all those things that make an individual an individual really leaning into those things with our children is very important instead of worrying about a number on the scale or size on a label. That should not define us. So what about the kids who hide food in their rooms, like Mm -hmm. candy bars, chips, and parents will find things under their beds? So... The question of hiding food comes up fairly often, and it kind of depends on what's going on behind that. So I always recommend that when parents have a concern about their child, they approach their child in a neutral affect at a time when they've got lots of time and really just ask them open-ended questions about what's going on, okay? Because we see lots of reasons why kids might keep food in their room, and some of them are legitimate, right? They might be growing really fast and they might be really hungry and they might be afraid their sibling is going to eat all of their favorite food while they're doing their homework before they come down. So there are some reasons like that that line up with really healthy growth and development. But I would say, and this is probably a good transition time, Colleen, that at times kids could be hiding food in the room because they're developing disordered eating. And so one of the things I know you want to talk about a bit today was disordered eating and some signs of disordered eating. And finding wrappers in a room, kids hoarding food in their rooms could be a sign that they are engaging in some disordered eating habits. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to talk about kind of the most subtle disordered eating. So we have a trend in our culture to eat clean. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. She's eating so clean. But can clean eating become disordered eating? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's certainly a hot topic, Colleen, so it's good that you brought it up. You know, as we mentioned earlier, for adolescents especially that are growing really fast, their brains are growing, they're building bone, they're growing in linear height, their body needs a tremendous amount of energy. And I'm going to keep saying it, all foods can fit. When you start eliminating foods or food groups or food categories, it can be hard to get enough energy in And we know that it can actually stall out growth and impair bone and brain development. And so I would never encourage the elimination of any foods or any food categories. 
And one of the signs of disordered eating or an eating disorder in a child or adolescent could be a change in eating habits that's not what the family did. So if, Colleen, you're talking to a mother and she said, shop regular, I shop the same way I always have, I'm making the same breakfast, lunches, and dinners for my family that I always have, and now my daughter or my son will only eat these foods and is requesting I buy special foods, that would be a change from the family's eating patterns. And that would catch my attention as possibly a sign of some disordered eating or an eating disorder developing. It could also be a kid being curious or reading too much or misapplying something they've learned. But I would get curious about that. I would tell the parent to say, tell me why you're asking for that. What are you thinking about? And learn about what's going on with their child. So what are some questions they could ask their kids about that? I mean, open-ended questions are always great when you're talking to kids. You know, I would just start with, why do you want me to do that? Or if you observe them doing something, tell me why you're doing that. And just learn lots of time. Remember, kids are not great abstract thinkers. Remember, abstract thinking doesn't come in until late adolescence. So very young kids, you know this, are concrete thinkers. Those mid-adolescents are learning to become abstract thinkers, but they often over-apply or under-apply something they're learning. So very, very often, it's just misapplying something they've learned. I heard X is bad, so I'm trying to avoid that. That could be a very simple answer. And it's okay for a parent to say, no, you know, we eat some foods that include that, and that's okay. And we also have these other foods. So it's okay to just have a very open conversation. But when parents see more and more rigidity, refusal to eat things, not participating in family meals, not eating the way they used to eat, especially if that leads to a change in weight. And definitely, if it leads to a change in growth patterns, then that would make me concerned that we're looking at not enough energy going in, and that we need to get involved, we need to get in front of learning more about what's going on with that child. That's helpful. So let's talk about bulimia. Like how prevalent is that in girls and what are the signs and what is the impact on the body if they are bulimic? And is there a range? Yes. So bulimia nervosa, the average age of onset in the United States is somewhere around 12 years now. Oh my gosh. Average age of onset of anorexia nervosa and its cousin illness, binge eating disorder, we actually know probably starts much, much younger. Many kids will describe that drive to eat, often starting in early childhood. So bulimia nervosa is defined by episodes of binge eating associated with compensatory behaviors in an effort to avoid weight gain. And those patients we know are overly influenced. They're overly worried about their shape or size or weight. Most patients with bulimia nervosa are going to present at a normal weight or perhaps be higher than you would expect their weight to be. And compensatory mechanisms, there can be a lot of them. I always hate to go into great graphic detail because I never want to give a patient an idea for a behavior, a compensatory behavior. But it is probably important to point out that ones parents catch the most would include patients who are making themselves vomit. That is only one of many behaviors. Also, we should point out that compensatory exercise, exercising because you ate or you feel like you ate too much or you don't deserve to eat, 
that's actually a form of bulimia nervosa as well. So we should probably call out those two behaviors specifically coupling. And so depending on the behavior, that will lead to what we see for medical complications. So patients who are over-exercising might present with exercise injuries. They're female. They might be missing some periods because they're exercising so much. They might have irregular periods. Patients who throw up may have medical complications related to that. They might damage their teeth or have tooth or gum pain or sore throats or feel like they have acid reflux a lot of the time. Yeah. And it's hard to discern, I think, sometimes for parents, what's what. Mm-hmm. So some teens will say that their stomach hurts. Yeah. Then they feel like they have to throw up. Yes. And I think this is a really good point is it can be very hard to tell when a behavior is an eating disorder behavior. And so a couple things I'd like to say that I think might be helpful to parents. So first off is a normal medical evaluation. I'm going to use normal in air quotes, Colleen. A normal medical evaluation does not mean your kid doesn't have a problem, especially when we're talking about the medical complications of bulimia nervosa. Those only show up over time. And so it depends on really the duration, the frequency, the intensity of those purging behaviors when we will see medical complications show up. So if you go to your pediatrician, they don't see any medical complications. It does not mean that your kid is just fine if you're a parent and you're worried. The second thing we know is that if you're suspicious that your child is overly worried about their shape and weight, they have a change in their thoughts, their behaviors, their actions, their words, and you're concerned about an disorder, the best thing to do is to get help from an experienced professional with eating disorders experience, okay? And so one thing families can do is call a facility like Veritas Collaborative and say, I'm worried about my child. I'd like them to be evaluated. These are the things I'm noticing and seek help from a professional service for next steps for getting started. Or if they have an eating disorders professional in their community, reaching out to them directly. But it's really important if you're worried about these kind of things, to see someone with a lot of experience. Because again, if you're a parent and you're worried and somebody falsely reassures you, that just allows time for the insulator to settle in, become more ingrained, and those medical complications to accumulate. Yes. And what I've seen with girls in my practice mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. there is a huge variety of purging behaviors. Yes. You know, once a week, it could be six times a day. Yes, that's such a good call out, Colleen. And both need eating disorders help. I think a lot of times parents want to say, well, it's not as bad as so-and-so or such-and-such. And so they wait, hoping it will get better on its own. And this is a really important point to make, which is eating disorders are mental health conditions. They are brain-based disorders. Their diagnosis sits in the DSM-5. These are mental health conditions and they need mental health support. These patients need to work with an eating disorders therapist. They often need to work also with an eating disorders informed dietitian, a psychiatrist, and an eating disorders informed medical provider because the ways it impacts these children needs a lot of support from a multidisciplinary team. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of girls and guys, mostly girls, Mm -hmm. feel like if they purge that they'll lose weight. Yes. And I think it's really important to remember that the eating disorder creates those thoughts, right? We're not going to talk them out of thinking this. And I think this is a really important point. 
for your smart moms that are listening to this, they have a great relationship with their child. They know their child. But when these unbidden thoughts are in their child's brain, you can't talk them out of it. And so it's really important to recognize that it's the eating disorder that is creating these thoughts that drive these behaviors. And so for these children, they need to be in eating disorders care so that they can learn to recognize those thoughts as the mental illness, as the eating disorder, and learn skills to use against those thoughts instead of engaging in behaviors. So again, recognizing it and getting professional help is really important because when parents think their kid's going to outgrow it, or they think they can talk their kid out of it, that just delays care. It just delays treatment. One thing I will say that I've seen is if it's not taken care of Mm -hmm. or dealt with like in high school, it often comes back in college. Yeah, for sure. Those college years can be very difficult. And lots of times, Parents, families will think that these illnesses will get better when they're older, that they'll outgrow them. And what we know is that they can be very long lasting. They can wax and wane over time, that different stressors can worsen them. And in college, it's even harder. So we were talking about kids throwing away their breakfast and kids not eating lunch at school. When your kid goes to college, they're away for you from three meals a day, seven days a week. And so if they have eating disorder thoughts or behaviors that haven't been addressed, that they don't have skills to recognize and skills to use against those thoughts, then in college, those behaviors can really accelerate and kids can start to have some really significant medical and psychiatric concerns. Do you see a correlation between eating disorders and anxiety? So there are a lot of mental health conditions that are comorbid with eating disorders. Anxiety is one of them. We also see a fair amount of depression and OCD and other mental health diagnoses that can sit beside eating disorders. So to be clear, Colleen, anxiety does not cause eating disorders, but many of our patients who develop eating disorders also have anxiety, but they may also have another mental health comorbidity as well. Talk a little bit about anorexia. How would a mom know if her son or daughter has anorexia? So Colleen, that's such a great question because this is actually probably the hardest one to pick up. So as we mentioned earlier, the average age of anorexia nervosa onset in the United States is now closer to 12. Okay, Mm -hmm. 12-year-olds are very, very young. And again, anorexia nervosa is a brain-based disorder. It's an intrusive mental illness that creates thoughts that lead to restrictive behaviors. So kids eat less than they need for their energy needs, for their activity of daily living, for exercise, for studying in school, and we're talking about earlier, for finishing growth and development. And so what's really, really hard in a 12-year-old is to know if they're not eating enough. Because lots of times these young kids don't present with overt weight loss. They don't come in with an adult who's stable at their weight and height. They suddenly start eating less and they lose weight. Kids are supposed to be growing. So when they don't eat what their body needs, they will actually stop gaining weight and then they will stop growing. And what we know now is when that happens, they're also not building bone and their brains aren't growing as well. And that's a lot sneakier than picking up an overt weight loss in an adult. 
And so again, parents just need to remember their kids should be growing. And so again, if you see a change in eating behaviors, you see a failure to gain weight as expected, and certainly in any growing or child or adolescent with weight loss, that is really concerning for restrictive eating disorder. And those families, again, I would encourage them to immediately seek help from an eating disorders professional. They're not sure where to start. Again, they can call a resource like Veritas Collaborative and talk to a professional about how concerned they are about their child. And also if they stop their period when they've had their period. Yeah. So for adolescent girls who started their periods, losing their periods is kind of a classic sign. It's probably a reason why you have such a hard time getting guys into care, Colleen, because they don't Mm. have such a clear cut marker. And Mm. we also know that boys are at increased risk because boys have that growth spurt later than girls. So if they start their eating disorder right as they're hitting their growth spurt, not only are they at more risk to not grow in height the way they should than a girl would be at that age, but testosterone symptoms are not as obvious. Most pediatricians and most parents aren't asking constantly with young men about things like their nocturnal emissions or the frequency of shaving or their libido. So we do have questions we can ask about testosterone, but we're not as good about asking them regularly. That's really important when we're talking about eating disorders and equity for males and getting them to care. Yeah. So are there different signs or symptoms for males with eating disorders? Ooh, that's such a good question, Colleen. So we do know that all eating disorders can be seen in males. We have some evidence now that for anorexia nervosa in males, it may actually present with some different thoughts and some different behaviors. And some of those thoughts and behaviors, they may be more inclined to compulsive exercise, which could look like athleticism in today's America. They may have a drive for what we call lean muscularity. They want to be more muscular, but also with no fat, okay, chiseled. They might talk about being chiseled or having a six pack of abs. We know that anabolic steroid use is more common in males with eating disorders, including male adolescents. So that would be a sign parents could watch out for. And one other thing that may be more common in males is the use of the concept of a cheat meal, these binges in a large amounts of food, that often accompany really rigorous workout and eating schedules. So all of those actually in males could be flags of an eating disorder. Interesting. How would a mom know? Because kids will just eat a ton of food, like they might skip some meals and just eat a ton of food. So Mm -hmm. when is it binge eating and when is it just they're really hungry? Yeah, I think the concept of binge eating is often not well understood. But for patients who have binge eating disorder or binge eating behaviors that don't quite meet that disorder threshold. There's a sense of a loss of control over eating. They might describe feeling like they're floating away from their body or they're disconnected from the experience of eating. And these are mental health conditions, Colleen. They're going to describe shame, okay, about their behavior. And it's really important to remember that shame is a very isolating emotion. And it makes these kids turn to the behavior more instead of asking for help more. In fact, shame is a big part of bulimia nervosa as well. It's why these kids often have a hard time telling their parents what's going on. It's why they often have a hard time asking for help. And it's really important for parents to know 
that the kid isn't doing anything to be ashamed of or to be shameful of, okay? It is the illness itself that creates that feeling of shame. And so we can take away the power of shame by approaching our child with kindness and understanding and learning and being beside them. That's how we take that away. And of course, professional eating disorders help. Yeah, but I don't think the culture that we live in helps because I think it sets such a standard of being so thin, which has been for a long time, that it creates this culture of shame around body image. Oh, yes. I mean, there's weight stigma and weight bias. And we could have a whole separate podcast on that. And I think this is why it's more important than ever that parents listen to podcasts such as yours, because our children are all individuals. They're exactly who they're supposed to be. And we're their parents because we're exactly supposed to be their parents. And getting them through these years and helping them understand who they are and how to take care of themselves is such important work. When we listen to the outside world tell us what we should do, what we should look like, or who we should be, or how we should act, that's not honoring our individuality, okay? And it's also important to call out that some individuals will have these unbidden mental illnesses, including eating disorders, and they are treatable, but they require professional help. So this is hard road for parents in today's society. Mm-hmm. And I would really just encourage them to talk to well-educated providers like you, providers in their community, reach out to external resources if they feel like they need more help. If you're worried mm-hmm. about your kids, you probably should be. Yeah. And I think from moms, since I am one, I think mm-hmm. we can internalize us feeling shame because mm-hmm. our kids struggle with weight or mm-hmm having some sort of an eating disorder and we feel like a failure. What would you say to those moms? I'm so sorry. It (laughs) makes me so sad. It is an honor in my job that I get to see moms and daughters all day, every day. And dads and daughters and mothers and sons and fathers and sons, these kids come to care with me because their parent is worried about them and their parents supporting them. And their parent wants to learn how to help them be well and be themselves. And so, again, this is where seeking professional help is so important. Because if we listen to the outside world, the outside world can be very broken at times. And we can get messages that not only might not be helpful, but might either increase shame or stigma, make it harder to treat, make things go on longer. But together, I think we can change these messages. I think we can get parents to not feel the shame and stigma when their child needs help. That was where I'd like to see things by the time I retire. That would be great. Yes. So what impact has COVID had on eating disorders? Oof. You know, during COVID, we saw a huge spike in adolescents seeking care for eating disorders. We had a lot more cases come in. We had a lot of patients who were presenting very, very medically unstable. Admissions went up at children's hospitals all around the country. And we're still seeing kids whose eating disorder, they relate, developed during COVID, either during quarantine, after quarantine. And so again, you know, recognizing that there's not easy solutions to eating disorders, um, that we can't just offer simple advice that they need professional help. 
it is a very important point, but we definitely saw the rates of eating disorders increase during COVID. So we know there are a lot of kids that were affected. Yes, and that's what I've seen too. So what last advice do you have for the moms listening? Thank you, Colleen, for having me on. I tell you know, moms this every day in my office. I'm like, you're a great mom. You've got your kid here today. And you know your kid best. You've known them since your first day with them. I'm a latecomer to this whole conversation. And moms know their kids. They know when their kids are struggling. They know when their kids are hurting. They know when their kids have a change. And I would just really encourage them, even if their pediatrician says, I'm not worried, if they're worried, keep looking for help. We have studies that show that parents know when their kid has an eating disorder far before we can see changes, and that often they have to see multiple providers before a provider sees what they see. So I really just want to encourage your moms to lean into, I get it. They know their kid better than any of us, and we want to listen. Really good advice. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I know this has been really helpful. So how can moms know more about you or talk to you or do you have resources for them? Yeah, there are a lot of great nonprofits in the field of eating disorders that families might want to check out. If they're in an area uh, served by Conto Health, they can find us through the EMILY program or through Veritas Collaborative. We've got great websites for both with lots of information for parents. We have podcasts, we have things to read. And so those are great first resources for families. So thank you for allowing me to give that to your moms that are listeners, Colleen. Well, the more resources, the better. I want to say that there is hope. For there sure. is hope Thanks. that these are treatable. And yes. I've yes. seen that in my practice over the past 30 years. And I also want to say to you moms is talking about food is so difficult. Mm-hmm. especially with your daughters. And so if they just go ballistic, if you just mention anything about food, no, you're not the only one. It yeah. happens all the time. So do you have any advice for that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to point out parents don't cause eating disorders, okay? There's no one thing that you're going to do that's going to make your kid have an eating disorder. And so I always tell parents whose kids do develop an eating disorder, these are very genetic illnesses. And don't play that shoulda, coulda, woulda game, okay, in your head afterwards of all the things you should have done differently. Accept that this is who your child is, honor that these are treatable illnesses, and seek help. It's a good point. We don't want parents to be so afraid that they're going to do something wrong, that they're going to cause something. That's not the approach to take. The approach to take is building a healthy household where you have an, a relationship where you can talk about things and accept help when you need help. Okay, one more question. <laughs> Talk a little. <laughs> I'm just curious. Talk a little bit more about what you mean by it's genetic. Oh, yeah. We didn't really talk about that much. We covered a lot of ground today. We have a lot of evidence now that eating disorders are very genetic. Many of the families that I meet when I ask about a family history will have relatives on one or both sides that have had an eating disorder or disordered eating or other mental health diagnoses. So we're just at the beginning of learning about this, Colleen. But it's really important to point out that like 
other mental illnesses like anxiety and depression, OCD, things that people maybe recognize and talk about more. Eating disorders are unbidden brain-based disorders. They're mental illnesses and families don't cause them. Kids don't ask to have them. We do a lot in our society that probably brings them to the front, but they're also, the genetics on these are real. And so again, I think it's really important for parents to not beat themselves up and wonder what they did wrong if their kid develops an eating disorder. I always say something was going to happen that was going to kick it off if that brain is hardwired to have this illness. That's so interesting. All right. Well, we need to land the plane. Uh, So (laughs) thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you, Colleen. And I really appreciate you bringing awareness of eating disorders to your listeners. Thank you so much. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning best-selling books, God Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com. And that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.